HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is presented by Bon Bon, a neighborhood bistro in Lawrence, Kansas, bringing Midwest flavors to international cuisine. This week on Meet and 3, we're looking at factors that will shape our food world in 2019. We start with trend predictions and how media covers them. A website could theoretically devote all their coverage to these viral trends and, and get all sorts of hits. That's not a way to build sustainable readerships, just as it's not a way to build you know, sustainable restaurants. We report on a big change coming and how street meat will be served. On January 1st, a ban on plastic foam went into effect in New York City. And we round out the episode with a story about using gene editing to create the spicy tomato of the future. At first, it sounds like a, like a gimmick or like something that you would do for fun. The truth is, there is a real value behind it. It's not too late to make your resolution. Subscribe to Meet and 3 wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a single episode this year. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Cora Lee. We talk a lot about a culinary appropriation on the show, but what about cinematic culinary appropriation? Michelle Bloom is the author of two books, most recently Contemporary Sino-French Cinema. A French film and comparative literature professor at UC Riverside, she's interested in the intersection of food, culture, and film. Welcome to the show, Michelle. Thank you. Thank you so much, Paul. <laughs> so in the um, essay I found you... In you start by saying food, memory, and film form a trifecta. And what significance does this trifecta have for you personally? Ah, well, I mean, I think each of these, uh, the elements of the trifecta, as I called it, are so engaging, interesting, fascinating um, reflections of culture and society, and so food, we all love food, right? I shouldn't say all, but most of us do. Um, memory is such an interesting phenomenon, scientifically and otherwise, and film, and then you put them together and you get, you know, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, as Aristotle said, right? So all these interesting permutations and combinations. Yeah, so what, it is, what is it about these three that um, maybe illuminate or contribute to each other? Okay, well, I think food and memory is perhaps most famous um, through, like, Proust-Madeleine, right? Mm-hmm. So the idea of voluntary, um, involuntary memory, 
the Proust Madeleine uh, dipped in lime blossom tea provokes memories that constitute thousands of pages of the novel. Um, so that's, that's a good example. And, and memory and film, I think of flashbacks, right? Film has, not only film, because of course literature um, has that tool as well, but the flashback is a, a cinematic tool that's so conducive to portraying memory. So those are those two, and then food and film, of course, we have a, a um, burgeoning uh, genre since the 1980s with Tom Popo and Babette's Feast. Um, the genre of food films has been burgeoning since, I mean, this is not the beginning, but the 1980s with um, Itami, Juzo Itami's Tom Popo, the ramen, quote, ramen western, and Babette's Feast um, by um, Gabriel Axel. So those, those were early food films, not the first. Um, before that, La Grande Bouffe in the 1970s, and since then, countless food films, Ang Lee's Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, Ratatouille, you know, so many different ones. Um, so, and then I was saying you put them all together and it, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And one thing that I didn't mention before the break um, was the notion of the senses. Clearly, food engages the senses, especially taste, smell, and vision as well, and vision is certainly key in film, the, the images of food. Um, and my memory is also provoked by the senses of taste and smell, um, especially, also visual, but especially the other two, and I mentioned the Proustian Madeleine phenomenon. And Jonah Lehrer, Lehrer talks about this in... Uh, Proust is a neuroscientist, the idea of um, of uh, the, the senses, food and the senses, and actually especially smell, the olfactory, as being key um, even more than the gustatory, perhaps surprisingly. Um, so all of these coming together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you mentioned that there's this new burgeoning um, wave of food films. And I think even more so as of late, there's been a lot of food slash travel films on um, streaming platforms like Netflix or even I think Hulu has some. And it, But then it's more about, I think, sight than taste or smell. And it's really, I, I would even say that there's rarely a story there. It's more about just the pure kind of mindless aesthetic pleasure of watching these beautiful foods um, in such high definition. And can you kind of contrast um, the purposes of films like that with um, something like Babette's Feast or Tampapo? Okay, that's interesting. So are you thinking of things like Anthony Bourdain? Um, yeah, that yeah. Type of thing? yeah. Um, sure. Um, so my work has been more on the the fiction, fiction films, food films of that sort, but I think you're right. When you said, you said, or I said, you know, recent burgeoning of this genre, recent, that is, is not so recent anymore, you know, 1980s, 90s, and I think it continues, but you're right to note what's going on um, in terms of the travel food fields, and, and then cooking shows, of course, too. So, 
Um, in terms of what is different, um, well, of course, the idea of a plot, right, in a, a fiction film, um, so character and plot. So, and Zimmerman and Weiss, um, in their book called Food and Film, um, they come up with one definition of the food film, and they talk about things like the importance of food in the role of one of the characters, or, you know, central role is key to qualify a film as a food film, hmm. right? So things like that, the transformation, we often see the transformation of a character. And I mean, I guess in a sense, the travel and food, it's also the idea of weighting the appetite of the viewer, right? Mm -hmm. um, fantasy of travel and fantasy of food, food carrying us to other places, psychically, psychologically, um, as opposed to travel, having us travel physically as well as psychologically. But I guess when I say that, also, you know, food in terms of the sensory does that as well, physically. Mm -hmm. Or aphrodisiacs, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, but I think this idea of the transformation of a character, a plot, these basic um, narrative elements, like are typical of food films in the sense of feature films. Yeah, I think um, what and, you said, yeah. especially as our uh, food being itself kind of a character, a key character in a film, is a really important distinction because um, this makes it instantly made me think of Ratatouille, where the food itself became this big, um, kind of unseen portion of this film, but you know meant so much to the plot and everything. But something like um, a travel or food documentary film, it feels more timeless and almost like um, the plot could happen to anyone or anywhere, and the food is almost forgettable. Oh, that's interesting that you say that the food is forgettable, but I totally agree. The idea of food as a character is a really nice way of putting it, and again, Zimmerman and Weiss talk about um, you need to have close-ups of food in food films, and you do, right? So you have that in um, in Babette's Feast, in Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, in all of these films, um, close-ups. Um, and then sometimes, like, the signature food, right? Like, um, in, uh, in Eric Koo's Singaporean telefilm that I wrote about in the Gastronomical article, you have um, the c curry... Curry rice, uh, curry rice, um, and you have in 27 Celsius um, the Lin Chen Sheng Taiwanese biopic. Uh, the red bean bun is the signature dish, so that's something also. So when you say main character, sometimes it is a specific dish. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll get into the synopses of those um, short films later, but I think what is really interesting is that the signature dish is not um, of one culture, of one heritage, but of two. And so I feel like that's really kind of complicated, and we'll kind of unravel that later. But um, specifically yeah. with yeah. your research, um, what about the intersection of French and Chinese culture is so rich for you? Oh, well... One, one work, you know, as a scholar, I'm always citing other people because our work converges. And 
Um, I'm thinking here of the work of a colleague named um, Suva Javier um, from Emory. She's an associate professor there, and she's writing a book on France and China in love, and she's an expert on Sino-French literature, um, and which is an area of mine, Sino-French film, in my first book. But she says, for instance, China and France, and I'm quoting her, each enraptured with the literary and cultural foreignness of the other while holding, each, holding up one another as their mirror, ultimate mirror image. And I think France and China fantasize about each other, right? France imagines China as exotic, ancient, mysterious, stereotypes, right? Some of the stereotypes are quite problematic, if not awful, like the Chinese woman as submissive problem here. And then the Chinese view the French, as many cultures do, but as sexy, chic, sophisticated. And in my book, Sino-French Cinemas, I looked at Chinese and Taiwanese helmed films, and those directors... Um, viewed France in their films in stereotypical ways. So it goes in both, that goes in both directions. So what they were looking at was the Eiffel Tower. It was Paris. It was a rich and diverse country reduced to Paris, right? Paris-centric vision. And so that goes in both ways. And the phenomena um, of that mutual interaction you know, it goes back, right, to the way back, but I mean, for instance, with chinoiserie in 18th, 19th century France, for instance, interest, and there's a lot of interest in um, or mutual fashion, fascination in design, aesthetics, um, of course, food as well. Mm -hmm. How, why do you think that mutual attraction persists, especially if it seems like both have a very limited or very surface understanding of the other's culture? Maybe that's why. Hmm. Maybe that's precisely why. I mean, you know, and I hate to say that, it's not only the superficial, but, but you know, that's what I'm pointing to is these stereotypes. I mean, obviously the cultures are both fascinating, as are, you know, most every culture, but um, but it seems like, in a way, what makes, makes um, what accounts for that enduring um, attraction, I think, at least these days, it's focused still on, on the idea of this superficial, you know, getting to, um, you mentioned in writing Saeed's Orientalism, I mean, there is an element of that. It's like the distant other whom we don't know who is attractive, or it can also be a negative stereotype, but, um, but because of distance, because of not understanding, not knowing, not actually interacting. So I don't want to say that that's all that there is, and hopefully not, because it's obviously a very rich exchange, um, potentially very rich ex exchange, and so the idea of going beyond that and I think, for instance, like those, like with the Sinophone um, films, films, Chinese, Taiwanese, um, et cetera, um, that reach out to France, if 
they started to reach out to other parts of what is called the Francophone world, right? Africa, or even to begin with a bit of, of France outside of Paris, and the same thing in the other direction, right? So going beyond the surface would mm-hmm. be a way to go. Yeah, it's funny you bring up um, Orientalism because I spoke with um, Jennifer LeMessure, who is mm-hmm. a professor of writing and rhetoric a few weeks ago, and we were talking about how these words, seemingly so innocent, kind of gain meaning until they're so loaded that it's really hard to use them um, in casual conversation anymore. So especially in film theory, why do you see East pitted against West so often and or e- how each are used to kind of contrast or, yeah, how, yeah. why they're seen as opposites? Yeah, sure. And I would say, like, it's not just in film theory, right, but it's in film. Right. It's in literature still, but so, you know, and and that phenomenon continues. So I think, I mean, I'm not necessarily going to address specifically theory, but also um, film, society, culture. I mean, I think that's why. I mean, I think I was sort of getting to the answer to that um, just before, but I think that, um, yeah, like some, an example of a film that tends to do that, and it's a great film, I love it, um, Jia Zhangke, Sixth Generation Mainland Chinese Director, his film from, I think it was 2001 or 2003, The World, Suju, um, was his first above-ground film, and it takes place in a, um, an, a theme park, which outside of Beijing, which um, actually exists, and which um, where you have reproduced um, monuments from around the world reproduced in miniature size. But the Eiffel Tower is the central, um, the central attraction, and certainly of the of the film. Um, so that's one example but then you know there's a whole spectrum and I think that um, I mean I'm not quite answering the question of why we still have east-west it's like well we tend toward uh, tend toward easy labels dividing things up Um, so that's part of it right east and west are completely arbitrary um, configurations um, we're trying to move beyond that. And so some of the films that I've looked at, I think there's a spectrum, and they do go a bit beyond that. Um, I don't know if you'd like me to mention a couple others yeah. or if you wanted to move on to something no, I think else. But. Um, it would be great if you could talk a bit about how your work specifically kind of illuminates that there is a spectrum. Okay, sure. So what I had in mind was in the third chapter of my book, I believe it's the third, um, I talk about the Taiwanese director, Otur Ho Shen, who um, made a film in France, so after making a film called Café Lumière in, I think it was 1995, so that he shot in Japan, and he was commissioned by Shochiku, um, a Japanese production company, to make that. So that was his first um, foray outside of Taiwan, his um, home country, home by adoption country. And then the film that I focus on is called Flight of the Red Balloon or Le Voyage du Ballon Rouge. And there it was solicited 
by the Réunion des Musées Nationaux, the um, French National Museum, and he was asked as part of a series to make a film with at least one scene in the Musée d'Orsay, the big Impressionist museum, um, to put it simply, um, in terms of the museum. So Ho Shen was not at all familiar with France. He does not speak the language, as he didn't speak Japanese. Um, and he stepped out. And actually, uh, uh, yeah, the, pro the co-producer of that film, François Margolin, who just actually opened his own his own documentary called The Jihadist, just opened this weekend in L.A. But in any case, so he connected, he's French, and he connected with Ho Shao Shen, and, and the film, and the way that I think Ho Shao Shen connected with France, from what he even said, was through the Albert Lamoury's film from the 1950s, the Red Balloon, the Ballon Rouge, which is a much-loved children's film. So he connected through that. He connected through a painting by Maurice Vallotton called the ba Le Ballon, the Ball, from the late 19th century. And so there, I think we see a Paris that is not... I mean, it is perhaps, I don't know, an outsider's view, or that's incorporated into the film. And so I would say spectrum. I mean, Ho Shen is himself come and his he fictionalizes his alter ego in the film in the form of a young woman filmmaker um called song fan who's the character playing herself um and there's the um, puppet master uh from the film his film called the puppet master also appears there and juliette binoche the famous french actress works in chinese puppet theater and translation so there's a lot going on in that film in terms of translation, in terms of the cross-cultural. So I would say that's a nice example of that. And also, um, Timing Zhang, who's a um, Malaysian-born ethnic Chinese auteur who's Taiwanese by adoption, and his film, What Time Is It There, or Ni Nabian Jidian, from 2001, that also, like, he gets away from stereotyping. Um, he really does not do that. He's a, an amazing auteur and very challenging, and he's really not interested in, like, tourist Paris at all. And so, but it takes, and actually the film cross-cuts between Paris and Taipei. Hmm. Um, so I can say more about it if you want, or we can... We're, let's take a break. Yeah, we're going to take yeah. a break. Um, this is meant to be eaten on Heritage Radio Network. We're going to talk a bit about um, 27 Degrees C Loaf Rock and Eric Koo's recipe um, when we get back. Thank you. 
This episode is presented by Bonbon, a neighborhood bistro in Lawrence, Kansas, bringing Midwest flavors to international cuisine. Bonbon is a place for friends and neighbors to come together and enjoy good food and good company. The heart of Bonbon is filled with love for the community of Lawrence, Kansas, for the staff and suppliers that put food on the tables, for quality local ingredients, and for fun, creative dishes. Learn more at bonbonlawrence.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. Hi, my name is Sam Ben Ruby, and I'm the host of The Grape Nation on Heritage Radio Network. With this show, we bring wine to the people. Each week, we bring the best guests in wine on, taste different wines on air, and invite our listeners to taste with us. You'll find our approach to wine decidedly unsnobby. You can find The Grape Nation wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. And we're back. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. So why don't we just get right into the two films that you compared in your, uh, your essay? Great. Sure. Oh, should I just get going? Yeah, can you, you give, um, because it'll be hard to understand without a synopsis, can you yes. talk a bit about um, what the two are about, why they were commissioned, um, why they're okay. such big deals, et cetera, et cetera? Okay, sure. So I can start with um, 27 degrees Celsius loaf rock, um, which is a biopic about the Taiwanese baker, Wu Pao Chun, uh, who became famous uh, by winning the Bakery World Cup in 2010, I think it was, in Paris. And um, he he's now, he after the film, he made, um, he opened two bakeries. So basically it's a rags-to-riches kind of story in a sense. I mean, um, he was a poor, a poor rural boy growing up in rural Taiwan in Pingtung County, and his mother was a plantation worker picking pineapple, and he became a baker's apprentice. So when I say rags to riches, being a baker is not a prestigious profession in Taiwan, um, and maybe in general, um, but in any case, he went on, as I said, to win this competition. And then when he went back to France, so this is outside of the film, he actually opened a, a bakery, the Upachun Bakery, the eponymous named after him. And, um, and then now there are several, and it's a very prestigious bakery. It's a bit um, higher price point than other. There are many bakeries now in Taiwan. It's a big thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Can you actually so explain that, the, the title? Because I feel like the translation is so odd. Yeah, and it really is. And I'm, thank you for asking that. The translation makes, like, no sense unless, like, after you look at the film and maybe look up the subtitle. So starting with the translation, which it's not really a translation. It's an English language title. Um, 27 Degrees loaf rock um, is uh, okay so 27 degrees refers to the temperature at which yeast rises and they make a big deal of that in the film in terms of the character of Upachun's apprenticeship in baking he goes to Japan for instance and the temperature 
varies depending on the climate and the distance from the water, etc. So it's a big deal to get that right. Wait, I, I, can we actually talk a bit about that? I feel like that's really important yeah. to have um, sure. even your home country not be necessarily suitable for your passion, which is a very French thing to do, right? Yes. Wait, a French thing to do what? Um, oh, to to, to bake, bread. bake bread, right. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I never really thought of it quite that way. That's an interesting take on it, but because they have trouble when they're near the water, um, I I don't know about that. I mean, they seem to make awesome bread there, actually, and Upanchun makes amazing bread. Mm-hmm. I think I kind of viewed it more, and I think that what the film is trying to show, I mean, it's possible, legit, you know, compelling interpretation that they're, like, going against the grain, pun intended, right, mm-hmm. the grain of rice, um, and you mentioned that in writing to me about rice versus bread, of course. Um, and yet, I, I viewed it more as like a technical challenge in terms of the, you know, in the context of baking bread. So maybe representing, you know, the notion of it being less um, native to Taiwan than rice. Um, but still, I. I viewed it more as like getting it right, aiming for perfection and the way that the film shows that, like the apprenticeship of the character. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so I, Low yeah. Frock. <laughs> what yeah, is that about? So lo- yeah, and Low Frock, I looked it up on the internet and it's a place, it's a rock formation in Antarctica mm-hmm. in the shape of a loaf of bread. So, <laughs> you know, that obviously loaf, yeah, loaf rock, but it just, it is nonsensical. So the the original Chinese language title is Su Ju Di Yi Fang, and as I say in the article, and um, a colleague named Earl Jackson, who's is a scholar in Taiwan, um, uh, polyglot, who works in, in Taiwanese, Chinese, um, or especially Taiwanese and Japanese and Korean, in any case, um, helped me sort this out, as did my research assistant, Chiang Zhao, from UC, a graduate student at UC Riverside. But the notion, well, so basically it means the world's number one bread. So that makes a lot more obvious sense, right, mm-hmm. than the... English language title. I don't know why it's not just called the world's number one bread. Mm-hmm. Um, but in any case, the, the title, one thing that's interesting about it in the original Chinese language, as I can explain thanks to the people I consulted with, that um, the song at the, the end is a neologism, so Romanized as P-H-A-N-G, um, and so we have, it's close to the Taiwanese, the Hokkienese Fang, F-A-N-G, and that's Earl Jackson, who, whom I consulted with on that, which is derived from the French pan, or um, bread, via the Japanese pan, in turn referring to the Portuguese pao, and I don't know the pronunciation. Mm-hmm. So it's getting at the notion that the film mixes it up between Taiwanese or Hokkienese and Mandarin. Um, so, and you were, you said something before about 
signature dishes, mixing it up culturally speaking. And of course, both Taiwan and Singapore um, do that. In, in, as cultures, they're quite diverse. Um, so in terms of language, as well as food, etc. Mm-hmm. So did you find that in your research that Fang refers specifically to this kind of Franco-inspired bread as opposed to Bao, which would be more like a steamed, very Asian bread? Yeah, I would think so, right? The Bao or Mian Bao, mm-hmm. right? Um, uh, but but actually, you know, it, the word is a neologism. So, and even that, I think it's like made up for the film specifically. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's a word out there to my knowledge. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a neologism of the director. And that's something that my research assistant, Xiang Zhao, um, he found that in doing some some research. Um, so it's not like a word out there. Mm-hmm. I wonder if um, Wu Pao-chen at his bakeries makes his employees call it Fang, just like in a nod to the film or in keeping oh, the no, facade. That's a, a very good question. I visited the bakeries, actually, and um, I'm not sure that I saw that, but that, that's a very good question. I think I was doing work on the title after I visited the bakeries in 2015, um, but, but he clearly, in the bakery, I mean, I haven't even gotten you asked me to to summarize the plots of the two films. I haven't obviously gotten to the recipe, so if you want to help me veer back, feel free. But but the bakeries themselves are are quite interesting. Um, In terms of uh, the way that they mix it up culturally, again, he's really playing on lots of different cultures, not just France, but German bread and this. and, And of course, what he calls not of course, but I found in looking and tasting what things that he calls like French bread, and this is not a criticism, but but an observation, they're not authentic, quote-unquote, French. They're adapted. Definitely. And they're yeah. All, hmm? yeah, there's um there's a bakery um, by my house in California called 87 Degrees C, and that was you know, oh. the quote-unquote classy place to get our breads, and you'd go, and this is for, you go for, um, I guess, the Chinese interpretation of French bread, and nothing is yeah. French there, but it's it's this very interesting hybrid bread. That, yeah, yeah, I know I know 85C, right, mm-hmm. in Pasadena, oh, right, and I, I was there in Taiwan, in Taipei, I think, and here, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's fun, it's it's tasty and it's different. It's not. I mean, even the desserts there. I have it. I've had more of the breads than the desserts, but I think the desserts are beautiful. They're not the same as French. Like they're not. Yeah, just less sweet. Yeah, less sweet. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and yeah. the breads are different too. Yeah. Let's. Why don't we just stick with twenty-seven degrees C before we jump yeah. into recipes? So. Um, I thought something that was really interesting is that uh, we get this understanding of uh, Pao Chen's mother not through an actual POV from her, but really yeah. of his her son's understanding of her. So can you t- talk yes. a bit about how food is used in constructing this character in the film? Yeah, yeah, sure. And, and it is so interesting because um, as I talk about the phenomenon of memory and Alzheimer's and it's different from the way that it's presented. We'll get to, to recipe Eric Koo's film, but here, as you say, it's because it's the film is told from Upa Chun's perspective, the voiceover, 
um, first-person voice over, and um, it's his memories. And um, and so that's interesting. I mean, well, I mean, she's she dies, so you couldn't have it from her perspective, but you can have flashbacks, right? She appears mm-hmm. in the film. But I think what's interesting is that kind of skirts, it doesn't, skirt the issue, I was going to say it skirts the issue of memory, but it doesn't. It's from his perspective, and she comes down with Alzheimer's disease, so it's an interesting way, so it, it's not dealing with the um, the memory loss entailed by Alzheimer's. Of course, all memory is selective, and it's, you know, it's from his point of view, but but the way that food um, comes into play is, again, as I said, his mother was a, a plant worker in the pine, a laborer in the pineapple fields, and so he grew up. They, the family was poor; they were impoverished, and he has memories, as I talk about in the article, of I mean, wonderful memories of his mother, but horrible memories of pineapple, right? And so pineapple, you know, just suggests, like, the cultural relativity and the arbitrariness, right, of, of food. It's not about uh, taste, per se. It's about context, as Jonah Lehrer says in Proust is a Neuroscientist, going back to Escoffier. Um, but, so it's about context, and the fact is, you know, too much of a good thing, cliche, but it's the abundance, because he had so much pineapple, he couldn't stand it, and he he's disgusted by it and has bad memories of it. Mm-hmm. So that's one way in which food comes into play in terms of his mother. He remembers that, but he also remembers her laboring, and this is really important because um, the labor of food production is so important and sometimes overlooked, and, you know, in terms of not just celebrity chefs, the, the real laborers. So, you know, he has fond memories of playing in the field while his mother was working or of um, being carried uh, on his, her back, that sort of thing. And then also, of course, he, he got the work ethic from her, and so he um, works, uh, toils um, as an apprentice, you know, that, the willingness to work hard, um, and then also he dedicates some of his bread making to his mother, the famous long bread that he presents at the Paris competition, which he wins, um, the character wins, and Upao Chun actually won, um, is dedicated to the memory of his mother, and then that provokes a flashback. Um, so the associations that are so important with food, the emotions, the context, and we see that in so many films, like like Water for Chocolate, um, or there's a film called Ramen Girl um, with Drew Barrymore. But the idea, you know, food, putting love into food, and um, and love inspiring cooking and baking. Right, so it goes in both directions. And then in this, well, you asked about the mother, but there's also his. Um, Vouchun's uh, childhood sweetheart, and he's striving for years and years to make her the perfect red bean bun. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I was actually going to ask how it's really interesting that he didn't win the competition with the red bean bun. Like, you would think that would be the satisfactory winning or kind of culmination of his love. So what do you think about that? Why is he winning with this bread-inspired or, like, I guess, modeled after his mother versus the red bean bun, which he spent so long trying to perfect? Oh, this is a good question because I need to look back at the details on... You know, I, I'm not sure if he won that he won it based on any one item. Ah, okay. Um, I'm not. You know, I would need to look more closely at that. But you're, but you're right that the the red bean bun is that is really it's certainly not the red bean bun though. You're right about that. And I think like one reason is the red bean bun is like a pre-existing um, kind of um, bread and kind of baked good. Um, standard, whereas the long on red is something that he invents, he creates. So isn't it like that's a really long on red wine bun? I think it's really funny that it's like a French Chinese bun too. Yes, yes, and I don't even think it's a bun. I think it's just bread, hmm. if I'm not mistaken. Um, but yeah, same thing. So I think the red bean bun is very connected to. Um, his childhood sweetheart. And the culmination in the film of that is in scenes that are intercut with the competition, and that is Upao Chun meets up with Shinmei, and she's the, the night before she's getting married to a French man, and he bakes her red bean buns and she serves them at her wedding so it's kind of interesting there and he she talks about um him him and her native taiwan and sort of does a tribute pays tribute to both him and oddly at her wedding to another man but also to taiwan at her wedding and so we hear that but he finally kind of makes i think makes the perfect red bean bun so that red bean bun is associated with her so, and then, and again, I think it's the idea of, like, creation, even though it's crucial to the film. The red bean bun is so crucial in terms of that and the relationship to Shinmei. Mm-hmm. But somehow I think they're, one is associated with the mother and one with the um, the girl. And But it is interesting that the one with the mother is the one... I mean, I don't know. He's inspired also by Shinmei, <laughs> right. but, but, yeah. It's it's more touching if it's his mother. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Different, different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, you said something really interesting about how I didn't realize that Shinley married someone else and that the red bean bun yeah. was served at her, at her wedding and it was kind of like this almost love letter also to Taiwan. And I'm now yeah. drawing parallels between the um, the cut rice dish in recipe. So why don't we kind of pivot here and yeah. talk a bit about recipe. And I, what I think is especially worth noting is that that film was kind of solicited or created yes. with like a social, um, yeah. Can you talk a bit yep. about that? Yeah, yeah. So it was solicited by the Singaporean Health Promotion Board um, from Eric Ku, who is a, you know, a preeminent or the preeminent Singaporean auteur director. Um, and so the film was solicited as a film of addressing the issue of dementia or Alzheimer's. And, and Eric Ku, who many of his films deal with food in a major way, um, 
used film, I think he said in interviews, you know, as a way to draw in the viewer so that it's not just a terrible... I mean, I, I'm elaborating on what he said here, but, but I, you know, the obvious idea, we all, again, generalizing, but most of us love watching. We love food. We like to watch films about food. So that enriched the film and made it maybe more pleasurable to watch. So it's not so um, horribly depressing. Um, there is a positive dimension to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, ask- in the role of food, right, um, and many levels, so in the role of food, um, conjuring up or provoking memories, even in, so in this case, from the point of view of the, the matriarch, Madame Ching, um, so provoking her memories, so, and making her happy, so even though she's suffering from cognitive, the cognitive decline and memory loss of, of Alzheimer's, she's still able to remember through the voluntary, uh, I'm sorry, involuntary memory process um, stimulated by, by food. So it could be marketing, going to the market with her daughter, um, or um, cooking, teaching her granddaughter Weiwei how to cook, or her daughter who opens a restaurant, all of these things. Mm-hmm. Okay, so just to kind of reiterate, in summary, Madame Ching, when she was growing up, she had her own food stall um, with, I'm, right. I'm guessing it was her husband? Yes. Okay, so, and then they had this beautiful oh, food together, cart. Yeah. yeah, this food cart that was very successful, and then um, fast forward X amount of years, she is now with dementia, and she's kind of passing down these recipes to her children. Yes. And her daughter, her daughter who has daughter. her own restaurant now, and um, her daughter is using, um, obviously she loves to celebrate her cultural heritage and is sharing her food, but also is using these dishes to kind of um, reconnect with her mother, even despite the memory loss. Yeah, exactly. Um, the one thing is that she, um, the character of Grace or Chiyun who opens the restaurant, that's sort of part of the focus of the film and it culminates in her opening a restaurant. So the, the storyline is that at the beginning she, so she's a uh, cook, she's a chef, she's working for someone else and she wants to open her own restaurant hmm. and the plan is as we go into the movie she's, um, she has backers to open a French restaurant, a fine dining, sort of haute cuisine French restaurant. And she backs out, I mean, I'm kind of giving it away, but I don't think it's a real suspense plot <laughs> film. Um, yeah, but so she ends up backing out of that to the dismay of her backers who she wants them to get on board for this new venture, which, you know, is a tribute to her mother, but does like offers street food in, you know, it's sort of like yuppie street food, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and and um, they, they back out. So that's kind of the big thing. It's like she loses the deal. She's willing to lose the deal um, in order to, instead of going with the French cuisine, she goes with the Singaporean and the mother, her own mother, um, and her mother actually gives her money. So it's about that. It's about um, the matrilineal, the female relationships and support and, and Singaporean 
cultural heritage and culinary heritage. That um, it's very much a statement about that. So at the same time, um, Eric Koo is talking about the loss of memory. He's also talking about well, the loss of personal individual memory. He's also talking about the loss of cultural memory and the need to preserve memory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mentioned earlier that um, in this solicitation, a film about dementia would not only be very kind of depressing, but also not necessarily stimulating. But um, the fact that he kind of conflates it with this this threat of losing our entire culinary history through the loss of one individual, I thought was especially important and poignant and made the film all the more successful. So why is Singapore, this is such a big question to ask in the last 10 minutes, but why is Singapore especially so kind of at risk for losing its culinary history? Oh, oh, this is an interesting question. And I mean, it seems to me the culinary, the the alimentary is going strong in, um, in Singapore. Like, for instance, um, in recent, very recent years, two Singaporean hawkers got Michelin stars, mm-hmm. and they were the first ever to do that. So, uh, so in that sense, mm, I don't know. And oh, actually, here's I mean a popular cultural reference in the third volume, and this kind of involves an admission that I read all three volumes of Kevin Kwan's Crazy Rich Asians. Um, that the protagonist, Nick Young, in the third volume, um, Rich People Problems, um, he takes his wife, Rachel, to the best noodle hole in the wall in Singapore. So in the film, we have a hawker scene, but in that, toward the end of the, the third volume, he's taking her there. She's from the U.S., of course, only to find that the venue has permanently closed, and he tells her... And I'm quoting here, everything I love about Singapore is gone or it's disappearing fast. Every time I'm back, more and more of my favorite haunts have closed or been torn down. And it may seem silly um, to quote Kevin Kwan and Crazy Rich Asians, but I mean, this is compelling. And Eric Koo, in a much more high art fashion, um, talks a lot in his films about... um, about well, he talks about the marginalized, um, but but certainly um, he's interested in food and culture, um, food as a sign of social class, for instance. Why Singapore is so? I don't know if Singapore is really in danger of losing its culinary heritage, but I think the greater concern that I see is the larger concern of the speed of modernity or post-modernity um, in Singapore, also in Asia more generally, not to generalize, but I mean, one sees that like Hong Kong, for instance, um, how, and the Taiwanese director, Tsai Ming Young, he really, um, I mean, if, if I may, um, he's very interested in the idea of ruins and um of movie theater being uh, torn down and and the sky uh, architecture and so actually in Crazy Rich Asians they also talk about um, architecture and um, I'm I'm blanking out on the name of the main uh, house the Amaz big house but um, 
so that's a whole issue, and there's also the issue of cult of preservation that comes up. So I think, um, I I mean, I guess you know the risk or the threat is like globalization and um, you know commercial industrial food taking over kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But it seems to me that hawker food is alive and well. Um, Right, as reflected by the Michelin stars, which also, also, you know, that makes them a, a tourist destination too. Um, so that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, it seems to me the cuisine is so compelling, and it's not any one. Right, as you suggested, it's it's a um, cultural melange. It's a um, hybrid cuisine and there are many cuisines it's not a cuisine it's right so it it is so rich and diverse um yeah i think that's a perfect and somewhat depressing but also illuminating uh, nugget to leave on (laughs) thank you so much for being on the show today michelle thank you so much for inviting me i really appreciate it thank you bye-bye bye Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.